David. Hi, Natalie. How are you? I'm really good, thanks. Thank you for inviting me on tonight. Brilliant. Thank you for having me. Um, if there is anybody watching live and you're able to comment to um, let me know that this is live okay and that you can all hear me, that would be really super useful. <laughs> so I'll, uh, I'll kind of like just sort of hum, you know, plod for a moment to see whether anyone comments. But um, thank you very much for joining me, David. I'm really looking forward to um, chatting to you about disability history. I just wondered whether you could um, take a second to introduce yourself whilst we hopefully wait for somebody to comment and, and confirm that it is live and that they can hear us. <laughs> uh, sure. Well, hi, everyone. My name is David Turner and I'm Professor of History at Swansea University, uh, where I teach and research uh, disability history. Um, I'm particularly interested in uh, the 18th and the 19th centuries and uh, my most recent book is called Disability in the Industrial Revolution which I co-wrote with Daniel Blackie. Great, thank you very much for taking the time to join me. Um, so I was wondering, could you tell me a little bit about, um, I, do, I think when, when I think about disabled people in the past, I often assume that they were um, marginalised um, and unheard and maybe to a certain degree not made visible and that but I wonder how accurate that is during the industrial revolution obviously because of the uh, increase of work accidents and, and mechanisations and things like that so I just I wonder whether you could tell me a little bit about that so it's sort of how visible would disabled people have been during the industrial revolution. Yeah, well, it's a bit of a myth, really, that um, disabled people disappear uh, from society around about the time of the Industrial Revolution. So, Because there's an argument that uh, with the economic changes that take place in the uh, 18th and 19th centuries, uh, this made it harder for, for disabled people to find work. And so they were increasingly uh, shut away in asylums and workhouses and other kinds of institutions. But that really wasn't... Uh, everyone's experience at all. I mean, what you actually find when you start uh, reading sources from this time is just how visible disabled people were. So you have uh, people commenting on visiting industrial areas such as uh, um, the uh, cotton and woolen districts in uh, northern England and just being amazed by the sheer numbers of disabled people that they are encountering on the streets. Um, there's even uh, one newspaper correspondent who goes to the um, coal and iron town, Merthyr Tidville uh, in South Wales, and uh, in, in around about 1850, and he, and he remarks that, um, that, that there seems to be more people with wooden legs uh, in the streets of Merthyr Tidville than, than any, almost anywhere else in the country. So, so disabled people are, are absolutely everywhere in industrial Britain. I'm so glad you used that example because I have ancestors from Merthyr Tidfield that would have been there in about the 1850s wow, as well. Yeah. So it makes it much more um, easy to pick their life. But um, so, so why were those disabled people so much more visible? Is that because of work-related accidents predominantly? That's a big factor in all of this. So. Um, the, the areas I've talked about just now, like the, the South Wales coal field and the um, 
and, and the, um, the textile manufacturing areas were, were quite notorious for uh, the numbers of industrial accidents uh, in in the um, early 19th century. Um, you know, coal mining in particular is, is regarded as a very dangerous uh, industry. Um, we, we, we most often think about it as, a, as an industry which has very high mortalities, lots of people losing their lives in accidents and, and lots of people did, but there, there were many, many more people um, left uh, seriously injured or permanently disabled as a result of working in coal mines. And um, we also find um, so lots of accounts of, of people suffering terrible injuries in machinery accidents, in, in factories and so on. And, and so these are the kind of people who get noticed uh, by social commentators uh, in uh, the industrial revolution. I think it's also a fact, um, uh, also related to the fact that more people are, are moving from the countryside into towns at this time as well. And, and so as urban populations grow, um, so disabled people perhaps become a bit more conspicuous uh, in ways that they weren't in in, uh, in in rural communities. So this kind of coming together of people in industrial towns makes uh, disability very noticeable. And so it's picked up on by uh, social commentators and uh, other people writing at the time. And were, so was there, did attitudes vary between the um, people who were born with disabilities and people whose disabilities or developed disabilities due to illness, etc. But compared to people who'd had um, whose disabilities had been caused through work-related um, accidents, was there like a, a different attitudes for different types of disability or different causes of disability? Yeah, I mean, the key word there is causes and, um, you know, attitudes towards disability almost at any point in history are not uniform. So there's always lots of differentiation in the way in which people view disabled people and, and the causes of disability are really, really important in that. So um, if someone is disabled uh, as a result of something which can be seen as their own fault, uh, whether it's through reckless behaviour or through some kind of moral failing, like uh, uh, um, drinking drinking too much, for example, uh, then, then then these people are more more stigmatised than those whose uh, impairments are seen as, um, as 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 not being anything that they can that they could could do to to prevent, whether that's being born with uh, a, a particular impairment or acquiring it uh, in tragic circumstances uh, in an industrial accident. Okay. Yeah, I, I guess in some ways that's not much different to nowadays, I, I think in some cases anyway. Um, so, so you talk about um, quite notable things like loss of limbs, but I'm guessing, you know, some of the work that people were doing would also have put them under quite an immense amount of stress. So I'm, I'm guessing there was also, I don't know, maybe not a rise in mental health um, conditions, but... I wonder whether I wonder kind of how that that um, those kind of mental illnesses are caused by things like stress and um, working in a really dangerous environment and how visible those were and, and what the attitudes towards that was, if that makes sense. <laughs> it it does and 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 yeah, I mean, yeah, 
for us, it's very, very difficult to imagine that the, the stresses of going to work every day in a place where you, you, you could expect to be seriously injured, if not killed. You know, I mean, that must put enormous strain on people. Um, but these mental impairments are, are much less visible in our sources. So, um, you know, missing limbs get commented on all the time, but but um, but work-related stress, as I suppose we call it, now is, is much harder to find in our sources. We do get we do find some references to it. We talk uh, so um, you know um, so re people who are wanting to reform conditions of work in factories, particularly people who are concerned about uh, young children working in factories, sometimes refer to. Um, the kind of deadening nature of, of factory work and how this sort of dulls uh, the intellectual faculties of children who were um, denied opportunities to go to school, for example. Um, so those kinds of um, mental impacts of work tend to get picked up on a lot, but, but stress, it's something that um, we don't really find much of in the sources until the 20th century it becomes much more as time goes on it becomes more of a um, you know uh, more of, a, of an issue as uh, related to ideas about efficiency in the workforce and fatigue and things like that but in the earlier part of the period um, work-related mental ill health is, is 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 often quite difficult to to locate in, in our in our sources and I, I presume that's the same for conditions that we would now call, you know, PTSD and and, and those kind of ailments. Um, I'm guessing that's just as hard to kind of pick up, but I mean, it must have existed. <laughs> yeah, and we do find it, um, we would start to find um, sort of discussions of, um, of, of uh, trauma particularly in, in not, not so much in the context of uh, of work of industrial work but in in um in relation to military veterans in the second half of the 19th century so uh, in particular in in north america the uh, veterans of the uh, civil war um many uh, many of them uh, disabled veterans found their ways into institutions uh where um, they, they uh, you know, where, where sort of alcoholism was a, a real problem uh, amongst uh, disabled veterans, and uh, and some historians have have, uh, have seen that as a as a response to trauma. Um, of course, it could also be a response to um, the, the 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 boredom of, of being housed in, uh, in 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 a, in a veterans hospital uh, over a long period of time. Um, so so yeah, we do. I mean, it's not it's not called PTSD. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. Don't get that, that diagnosed until until um, <laughs> until quite recent times, really. But but certainly um, from the from the, the the second half of the nineteenth century, there's a, a great deal more interest in um, in, in war related trauma, and of course, this takes off um, uh, uh, here in Britain, particularly after the First World War, um, and um, with, with cases of shell shock. Okay, thank you. I just. Um... I will come back to that in a second, but I just wanted, I just noticed a comment flick in and I thought I would just pull it up on screen. So Helen was asking whether you know anything about um, sources uh, for disabilities caused by TB, bovine TB. So I thought I'd pull it up before I forget it, but it's... Uh... <laughs> Um, I, I'm afraid I, I, I'm not, I don't really, I don't know a great deal about um, 
uh, about bo bovine uh, uh, TB. I mean, tuberculosis as a as a disease in the nineteenth century is very um, is, is very visible. So it's um, you know it, culturally it's very um, significant. You know, we have the the, the figure of this sort of romantic um, sort of uh, consumptive uh, figure. Particularly, you know, the, the archetype for that is John Keats, the the, the poet. Um, uh, but there's a lot of interest in the 19th century in in, in tuberculosis. Um, I don't know enough about the history of tuberculosis actually to talk about different types of uh, of that. But um, but, but TB is uh, you know one of, one of the most disabling um, diseases uh, there is in, in the Victorian period. Um, Helen, you might want to watch the interview that I did with um, Laura Newman from the Addressing Health Project. Um, uh, or, or get in touch with Laura because uh, she might be able to help you thinking about it just off the top of my head. Um, I know that she looked at um, the history of um, TB, certainly for postal workers, um, quite closely. So, but thank you, David. Um, one of the things you mentioned there was about, um, you mentioned that um, obviously people in the past wouldn't have called what we now call PTSD as PTSD. <laughs> um, and that, that got me thinking about how, when you read about um, uh, different disabilities, how, <laughs> I mean, some things I guess must be like quite obvious in that you think, yes, that's clearly got to be this condition that we now call cause X. But are we also, um, do we run the risk of looking at the past and kind of putting modern diagnoses on the past when we're looking at um, various sources? And, and how do we kind of deal with that? It's a really good question, and it's um, it's uh, you know as a historian, um, I try to, to avoid these kind of retrospective diagnoses uh, because they can be unhelpful because um, because uh, they, they reflect sort of modern ways of thinking about the body and and diagnosing certain diseases. Now, I mean, you, you know, you can read a source written two hundred years ago, and um, you know, uh, you recognise certain symptoms, and and um, and you know, you think, oh, well, that person must have have this particular condition. But um, but I think we need to be very careful about labelling people in that way, and sort of uh, because um, ideas about the human body, what causes disease, these change over time. And so, as a historian, I'm really interested in those changing explanations and how diseases and, and uh, impairments made sense in the context of their own time. So, so to get around that I, as a problem, I think that the, the best thing is to try and understand those, um, understand uh, medical history on its own terms, really, and, and, and try and think about um, the, the ways in which particular, um, particular symptoms were described in the past and ways in which particular bodies were labelled. I mean, with regard to disability, um, it's quite interesting that um, a lot of what we think of, you know, or ways in which we think about disability are quite recent, really. And um, it's it's only really in the, the 20th century that, um, that, that, that um, the, the word disability starts to be used to describe um, a certain group of people or to describe a particular condition or a problem um, and earlier than that it's it's quite difficult to find um, words such as disability used in those terms um, so yeah we, we do find uh, disability 
used in our sources. But um, but the very, the, the very few references to the disabled as a particular group okay. defined by by by, by um, some kind of special needs uh, status or um, or um, as being eligible for, for particular kinds of uh, services or, or benefits. Uh, that that's not something that we, we see until quite recent times. Um, you know, in fact, in the 18th century, um, the word disabled uh, is uh, is often used to describe a person or a thing who is um, temporarily or permanently incapacitated. So it's often used in in a military context. So um, so if you if you you type in disabled into a newspaper database of the 18th century, um, you'll find loads of references to ships uh, because okay. it's, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's a particular warship that's that's currently disabled. So it's in dock. It's uh, it's getting uh, patched up, ready to get to go uh, back out to sea. Um, so um, but then you do get some people described as disabled, but they tend to be ex-servicemen or uh, people who've been disabled in battle. So so the word disabled in the 18th century has um, a sort of honorific status. So being, being able to say you are disabled um, sometimes implies that you, you've, um, you know, you, you, you've, you've become incapacitated in a noble cause in, 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 in on the battlefield. Um, so it's not necessarily something that everybody can can lay claim to. I mean, by the time you get to the 19th century, it becomes a bit more widely used. But but these but these terms like disabled and disability uh, evolve over time. They, they aren't the same kind of they don't have the same meanings um, the further back in time we go. That's really I find that really interesting because it makes me wonder how people might have defined themselves or that their own um, impairments or their own um or their or simply their own differences just being differently abled um no i wonder whether i wonder just whether how how they considered themselves in that respect um and obviously i'm guessing it you know varies widely <laughs> mm. it does and um what one thing is quite quite shocking i suppose to 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 us today um is the, the kind of quite blunt language people use to describe disability in the past. So, so nowadays, um, you know, we, we we see terms like cripple, for example, as being offensive. You know, and you know, rightly so. So it's a it's a it's a, it's a term which is which sort of denotes disability as a sort of as a pitiable state. And um, you know, it's, so it's uh, it's a term that we 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 we, we shouldn't use. But but we see people in the, the 18th and 19th centuries describing themselves in, in those terms and, um, and and sometimes they do, or quite often they do so um, in a strategic way so um, so one source I've, I've, um, I've used quite a lot of is uh, records of poor relief and particularly um, letters written by people um, trying to claim um, assistance often from a parish um, uh, where they're living some distance from so they have to describe their situation uh, in ways that's going to make their case most effectively to um, an overseer and so um, people so, so writers of these letters whether it's the the person the pauper themselves or somebody writing on their behalf because not everyone had the literacy skills to be able to, to, to write um, a, a letter um, often describe this, their, their, their impairments or illnesses in, in very kind of 
pitiable terms. So they'll, they'll say, I am, a, I am a poor cripple and uh, I'm a true object of compassion. And, um, and this is quite strategic use of, yeah. of language, you know, it's, it's, you know, and it is something which resonates with, um, you know, if, if people who, who, um, who need to, to, to claim disability benefits today often sort of find themselves having to kind of adopt a certain kind of role um, to present their disability in the worst possible light, uh, not because they're lying about it, just because it's so difficult to convince others of um, their, their, their needs. And so uh, and so you find this in the past as well. So, so um, people use quite, uh, quite direct and quite sort of um, evocative terms, sometimes which might, might sort of present themselves in a rather demeaning way, but it's, it's strategic, it's designed to, um, to, to, to get the uh, this, what what meager support was available uh, to them. That makes complete sense, and I think maybe we don't give people in the past enough credit in in terms of um, that kind of strategy, developing those kind of strategies. So I find that really interesting. I've just got a, another question pop up actually, which is <clears throat> similar uh, along the similar lines to to the discussion we're having on language. So I'll just pop it up through from Rachel. Rachel would like to know um, how did uh, how were um, children considered and treated in the past? So children with disabilities, um, were they sent to institutions or um, might they have lived within a community? Um, well, that's a really great question. And um, the answer, is, the answer you know, to the question, were they uh, institutionalized or, did they, um, or were they in the community? Well, the answer is, is both and it depends i suppose and that those aren't uh, <laughs> those aren't great answers perhaps. but but it's it, but it but um but the, the position of disabled children was was quite uh, complicated i mean in the 18th century um there is a growing interest in the problem um in, uh, of disabled children particularly you know about uh, how children would would support themselves when they grew up and so there's in there is some investment in, um, in in developing opportunities for disabled children. Now, some of these are in are in the community. They are um, so um, so poor law overseers. I've just mentioned um, they aren't all evil. That <laughs> they are also um, create. They also uh, one of the things that they uh, they do is to subsidise um, work opportunities. So sometimes the parish. Uh, subsidizes the wages of young people so that they can enter employment so they can they can learn skills and um, at least contribute in some way to their own upkeep so um, so so at a local level then we at a community level we do see some attempts to try and uh, improve the chances of disabled children um, children with sensory impairments um, from the beginning of the 19th century are increasingly educated in, um, in, in specialized institutions. So um, first half of the 19th century, we see um, uh, a growing number of schools dedicated for the, to the education of blind children and deaf children to um, give, you know, again, to give them some opportunities to, to, to uh, gain the skills that would allow them to earn um, their own living. I mean, the, the the philosophy behind all of this is trying to prevent disabled children from growing up to be a burden 
on uh, the poor rates. So, um, so, so that's so. There's some investments, as I say, uh, in in trying to give them at least some training uh, to help them in that, that in, in their later lives. Does that mean that um, some jobs as well, particularly if they were perhaps jobs associated um, or under the control of the parish or the church, maybe were adapted or um, altered in, in in ways so that um, people with different disabilities could perform those roles and get paid for them? Yeah, um, it's it's something which doesn't, you know, it's difficult to find in, in, in the evidence available. I mean, it's, I mean, it's a really interesting question, I think, to, to um, you know, which I think where we need, I think, more research, actually, to, to find out about the, uh, about how work was adapted um, to, to, to enable people to participate. Um, there is uh, a view that be, that um, it's easier for disabled people to contribute economically before the age of factories because work is focused on the home. Uh, people have less pressure in terms of um, uh, the times of work, you know, so there isn't a kind of a clocking on time and a clocking off time. And uh, this gives some flexibility um, to to people to um, to, to um, work at a, at a pace that's suitable uh, for their ability. So this is one of the arguments that that um, that uh, people have made that, that factories change everything for the, for disabled people because um, because then um, conditions of work become much more disciplined and rigid and um, and and therefore um, it favours um, a kind of abstract able-bodied worker who can perform um, a, a set amount of labour every day so it has a, a sort of a, a kind of a normal level of, of uh, capacity to to work and I think to a certain extent that's true but at the same time that doesn't mean that disabled people are entirely disappearing from the industrial workforce in fact you have um, some um, people in the um, debates about uh, child labour in the 1830s and 40s arguing that certain workplaces are particularly suited for disabled people. So uh, there's a factory foreman in Manchester who go, comes along uh, to give evidence before the um, the, the, uh, the factory commission in 1833 who argues that uh, because factories are mechanised, um, work isn't as hard and so uh so um so factories are great if you're disabled and uh uh and there's a um a colliery um um a, 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 a colliery manager in in the northeast of england uh monk weirmouth in uh, uh near sunderland who uh in uh, before is gives evidence to the 1842 Children's Employment Commission about working coal mines. And he um, and he says that, um, well, the, the, the conditions in his coal mine are are really uh, underground. It's very warm. It's sort of a, you know, a particularly <laughs> hot mine. And so and so he describes it as an asylum for asthmatic people. You know, that's, uh, you know, that's, so, um, you know, coal mines, you know, if you've got asthma, um, coal mines are, are great. And, um, you know, uh, um, I, I, I beg to differ on that, on that point, but um, but but, um, but but his argument was that um, you know that working in a kind of in a constant 
um, warm temperature is more healthy than being out in the fields uh, in the wind and the rain, being exposed to extremes of, of temperature, which um, you know is seen as having a, a bad effect on, on people's health. So, so that's a good example of a, an argument which seems uh, strange to us today, but but it kind of made sense in the in the in the context of medical ideas at the time. Yeah, they, they they must have um, they must have had serious concerns about British weather if they were worried about extremes of different different temperatures outside, especially if they were here this month. Um, yeah. And Rachel, <laughs> Rachel was just commenting to say thank you, and and the, um, it, she found that really eye opening because it uh, she hadn't realised there was a much wider view of disabled children than than she'd previously thought. Um, so I'm, I'm just scanning my questions actually because a lot of the questions that I had written down we have um, just answered as we've been naturally chatting which is always good. <laughs> so, um, oh yeah. so, <laughs> um, so one of the um, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about and I kind of go, kind of goes back to that idea of stereotyping really um, is how did they view the relationship between somebody's external appearance and you know or a disability that might cause um obvious external differences um and internal character because i think stereotypically we tend to think of certainly later victorian kind of phonology and that kind of thing that they would think that um having some sort of physical impairment would be a reflection on your internal character but i i wonder how whether that's um almost like a really simplified and romanticized view through um, period dramas and things like that, basically. So I just wonder if you could expand on it a little bit. <laughs> well, that connection is there. Um, and as you say, that in the, as the Victorian period goes on, we have uh, eugenics, um, which um, is sort of um, make all kinds of judgments about, uh, about people's uh, capa capacities based on their appearance, particularly on their, their racial uh, characteristics. So, so these ideas are really powerful, and um, you know, arguably become more powerful actually in, as uh, time goes on. Because it's the late eighteenth, so late nineteenth and early twentieth centuries are sort of um, the high point, if um, if that's the right word, which probably isn't. But um, you know, the, the moment when eugenics is uh, has its sort of strongest hold. Um, over, over over social and intellectual life, there's a view um, that um, one of the, one of the cliches of disability history or views that people have of disabled people in the past is that um, in you know in centuries gone by, there's a kind of close connection between disability and punishment for sin, and okay. so uh, you know so. Um, you know, default, you know, I mean, the, the obvious example is um, Shakespeare's portrayal of Richard III, um, you know, as a, as a sort of evil character whose deformity kind of uh, body reflects this, uh, you know, his, his evil character, you know, his evil um, uh, sort of um, characteristics. And, and of course, he's a, you know, he's presented as a bad guy in, in, in that particular play. Um, those connections were there. For people to to use to use, but but they weren't. I wouldn't say this is a particularly universal view of, of, of disability um, in history. Um, so if so, you know, uh, if the circumstances um, permitted, then yes, people were able to draw those 
connections and to um, you know and, and to make that sort of um, association between um, outward uh, characteristics and in, in a character. But it's it, it isn't a particularly dominant view of uh, okay. of disability in history, and it's and I don't think it's and you know certainly in the period of history I'm interested in the 18th and 19th centuries, it's not it's not it's not really the dominant religious view of disability. I mean, um, you know, um, so um, religious writers in the in in the 18th and 19th centuries often talk about disability um, as a kind of um, as a test, really, as something as something where it's, um, that gave you almost gave you an opportunity to demonstrate your faith. So how you dealt with affliction um, was really really important. So um, so um, in in Methodist writing, um, which I think is a fascinating. I don't quite like to work on Methodist uh, periodicals, which are fascinating sources for. For um, for disability history because they have all these biographies of uh, people who've converted to Methodism. So, um, so, so you have accounts of people who, um, you know, who, who suffer accidents or um, become disabled from working, and and as they're confined to their sick beds for a period of time, and they have this conversion uh, when they, they um, that when they sort of find God and and then kind of um, become sort of spiritually enabled. Through their disability, because it sort of, um, you know, it, it means that they are sort of, um, you know, that they are sort of cast off from the sort of temptations of the world, and so they can, when they're confined to bed, they can devote themselves to, to prayer and meditation on, 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 um, on the word of God. So then they, uh, so, so then they become sort of beacons of, um, of um, re religious. Good conduct, and some of them, some disabled um, workers, go on to become Methodist preachers and uh, um, have this sort of really um, important spiritual role in in their community. So, um, so yeah, that's a very long-winded answer to, to your question. No, no, it's, no, it's uh, really interesting. <laughs> but, it, but, it's, uh, <laughs> but I think it's again really. goes to show that, that, that some of these uh, some of these cliches about disability in the past, you know, they're not they're not entirely untrue because you can find you can you can find examples um, that support that idea, but they're never really the, the whole story. And that's uh, I think what what I'm trying to trying to do in my work is try and sort of show the complexity of people's lives and experiences. No, I, I found that really interesting because I certainly the 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 kind of impression that I'd got was that that was quite a prevalent view rather than just one of, um, you know, many potentially. Um, mm. Okay. So, um, so you mentioned, so you mentioned then like the, um, the Methodist periodicals there, which I found quite interesting. So again, I have Methodist ancestors as well being, uh, having, uh, being uh, at least, you know, a quarter Welsh. So, <laughs> Um, but I, um, yeah, so my Methodistful Methodist would be really interesting. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just, you mentioned that as one of the sources and you've mentioned um, sources generally as we've been talking. And I just wondered whether you could tell me about, um, if not, if not just sources where we might find disabled ancestors, but also how we can go about learning about disabled, our disabled ancestors and what their experiences are like. Um, so after this interview. <laughs> Well, I'd, you know, I'd love people to to, uh, to to watch this and be inspired to try and find out more about um, about their 
disabled ancestors because we, we all have disabled ancestors and yeah. you know uh, it's, uh, uh, you know that's another thing I think is really important to, to emphasize that disability history isn't just about um, about an oppressed minority it's not about uh, you know it's about every, everybody's experience because um, because we you know we all have disabled ancestors disabled family members um, we all um, you know it, it, you know many of us will experience disability at some point in our lives if uh, you know if we haven't we aren't doing so already so um, so so this is really really um, important and you know I hope people will go out and uh, you know discover some really interesting stories about about their ancestors so where should you look well um i mean this this is yeah you know, um there's no you know, it's often sort of it's difficult to sort of direct people to to the kind of you know the one source where they're going to find <laughs> out about disability because because yeah, i mean you know an obvious starting point would be to look at um records of it of, of institutions where disabled people were uh, housed, uh, so asylum records or um, workhouse records perhaps, um, rec um, uh, the uh, schools for deaf and blind children that I mentioned earlier on, uh, they have some very interesting archives and um, you know, so you can find out about uh, about children who, um, who attended these, um, these institutions, but, but institutionalization is not the whole story really so um so there's the growth of asylums in the uh, 19th century after the 1845 the act um it's about 74,000 uh, patients in this by uh, 900 and that's asylum population increases uh, very significantly um in the first half of the 20th century workhouses um again the population of um, of workhouses who were um described as adult non-able-bodied um people um the, the 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 numbers increase over the 19th century but but the majority of disabled people don't receive support in workhouses so um so by about 1900 about about 28 percent of workhouse um inhabitants in in britain were were, were disabled in, in some way, but you know, so that's significant. But it's not by no means a, major, a majority. Um, so, so often we have to kind of find. So, if we want to look beyond institutions, then we need to be a bit more creative about the ways in which we um, use sources. And um, so, I found newspaper records really fascinating, and the fact that so much of it is digitised nowadays. Um, makes it makes disability history a lot easier because um, you know for a topic like disability where we're looking at people who often didn't leave records of their own you know we, we are um, uh, the ability to to, to to search electronic um, resources um, just makes life a lot easier in trying to find people who'd otherwise be, be very difficult to find uh, in um, yeah, in, in in newspapers and other sources. So, so finding the right kinds of words to use to uh, to search these sources is important. So we need to kind of think like a, a Victorian, if you like, about disability. So that means I think sort of um, having to to draw on language, like I said earlier, is um, you know considered offensive today, um, but will help us to 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 uh, to, to locate people 
in sources such as that. Um, I've got a, a student at Swansea University who's just finished a fantastic dissertation. Her name's uh, Abigail uh, Wotton Brooks. And she's just done a, a, an amazing dissertation on um, on uh, disabled people in Merthyrville. Um, and um, you know, and she used the um, the eighteen fifty one census as her main source for that. Yeah. Now, the census isn't brilliant, I would say, as a source for disability history, um, because most disabilities aren't recorded in the census. So, um, so it's people with sensory impairments are, are you know are there in the eighteen fifty one census, but but um, if if, uh, if you look for some uh, physical and Impairments, you know the, you know, the, the population of Merthyr with wooden legs and so on, which you mentioned in the in the Morning Chronicle in 1858, um, they aren't going to appear in the census as 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 disabled. So, uh, but nevertheless, I think that um, you know, there, there's some really interesting material in in, in the census uh, to um, to think about, sort of think about dis where disabled people are, are living in the community. You know, or you know, get into challenges again this idea of institutionalization because um because my student found um uh, deaf and blind people living and working in uh, that particular industrial community and um and yeah the other sources that she used for that particular topic to kind of fill in the gaps um left by the census were uh, government reports i mentioned a couple of those already um this evening but um, there's, uh, but um, commissions, uh, select committees, um, these sort of parliamentary papers are absolutely rich with references to disability and uh, accounts of disabled, ordinary disabled people's lives. So you know, so in the in the factory commissions and the and then the, uh, and the children's employment commission and, and coal mining. Hundreds of disabled people are coming forward to give evidence, or being being sort of um, pressured to come forward to give evidence by uh, supporters of of reform. To uh, you know, and, and their stories are, you know, are, are, are told in these source in these um, official reports in ways that we can't really access them anywhere else. And it's uh, so so yeah, there's 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 a lot of, um, a lot of uh, source material out there. Huh? Sorry, I thought I just lost you there for a second. Oh, thank you, David. I, I found that um, I was um, I was giving a big thumbs up when you said the newspapers because mm. it's my all-time favourite resource of all time. I think <laughs> I just spend all my life in the newspapers. I just can find out such a massive variety of things just by you know almost reading cover to cover as well. Um, <clears throat> but the um, that was really helpful. And uh, the only thing I was going to say about the census as well I suppose is that sometimes you can get clues although it might not say that somebody was disabled I suppose sometimes there might be clues that something was going on so for example if you had somebody that's always living with their parents that never um that never leaves the home that you might think that, you know it's always with them always with their parents doesn't get married you might think that could be for a whole host of reasons but one of those reasons might be that they might have a disability of some sort so you could look into it um just trying to think outside the box a little bit and also what occupation people did as well i suppose there's certain industries like the railways and the coal mining that you think they might be more likely to have um developed an injury through work um so um 
one of the so we all know just scanning what kinds of words have yet we've done that one <laughs> <laughs> so um my next set of questions was um about i've i have seen i just wanted to say helen i have seen your question pop up in the comments and i will ask david but i think what i'll do is i'll just wait to the end and then do a five minute question roundup so that we don't um interrupt the flow too much um just because we happen to move on from that particular segment um so what um when we talk about disabled people i know that you you said that people wouldn't have um, referred to themselves as the disabled as such, but were there um, were there different groups of disabled people, and were there um, you know alliances or tensions between those different groups or types of disabilities? Yeah, um, I mean, some of the experiences that I've talked about. Um, help to form communities and uh, particularly in uh, special schools and so um, in the uh, 19th century uh, th there's um, there's a lot of um, discussion around blind people's education and so uh, so the experience of education that um, blind people got in in schools eventually gave them the um, or gave them a sense of community but also gave them the uh, the literacy skills to, to critique some of the uh, uh, the the, the, um, the 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 methods of, of uh, blind education and uh, and, um, and and attack the segregation of uh, blind people in um, in in, uh, in in separate schools. So uh, there's a really interesting group of uh, blind activists um, in the uh, 1860s. Um, who um, are very vocal and in calling for um, the the closure of what they call exile schools. So these are uh, schools for for blind children, and, the, the, and so their argument was that by, um, by by shutting blind people away in schools, that uh, you know, with other blind people, this was um, th this kind of um, sort of increased the ignorance. Of the rest of society about 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 blindness, and that uh, it it was that it made it very difficult for those people who'd been institutionalised to reintegrate into society, and that it increased loneliness and um, and health problems. Actually, it's a good example of going back to your instance of you know they were concerned about the about the the impact on people's uh, minds about being uh, segregated uh, from from society. So they they argued for. Um, for integrated education, uh, so that that, that uh, blind children should be educated alongside sighted uh, children, and that um, and this is this is the way in which um, these kinds of um, barriers would be broken down. Um, so, so they had a very very distinctive agenda. Really, they they talked about um, about uh, blind and and deaf people as belonging to a distinctive. Group they, uh, they call themselves the four sensed. So uh, you know, rather than call themselves uh, disabled, they, they use this term, which is really interesting because it sort of about um, sort of natural difference rather than um, sort of impairment or deficit. Um, and so, so they 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 were very vocal in, in calling for reform. I mean, ultimately, they weren't particularly successful. Um, you know, what was actually happened was that um, that, that what uh, that um, other 
blind educationists came along and sort of uh, argued well for the benefits of of separate schooling and that um you know actually the, the conditions in those schools needed to be improved not necessarily um and integration wasn't necessarily the way so so yeah you get these sort of communities of disabled people emerging in particular settings like in schools and and also um earlier on in in um in certain industrial communities particularly around the uh campaign for reducing the hours of work in factories so uh we do have some disabled people who were um quite important to that campaign whose contributions are largely forgotten about today but um because they're able to um talk about live their lived experience of dis of uh, becoming disabled through working in factories then they their their testimonies are very useful for um for the campaign to reduce the hours of work uh, in these these factories but there's not really a lot of um but there's no kind of unified disability community that links together kind of um disabled factory workers and um, blind people pushing for more integration in society. Uh, they shared some certain kind of common themes. Uh, you know, both were kind of concerned about the social effects of of disability and the um, uh, and the way in which society wasn't particularly um, um, accommodating um, of people um, who were disabled. So that gives them a kind of you know something in common with modern disability activists, but. But, the, 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 but but they very much exist as separate communities which never really came together in a kind of unified movement. That's only something which happens um, um, much more recently. Okay, that's really interesting. I, I find um, I find the history of sensory impairment um, really interesting generally because it, you know, I'm just thinking about. Um, I was thinking in particular about um, you know death culture as in death with a capital D. Um, you know, and, and how that's evolved quite potentially, I suppose, quite differently from being visually impaired. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's interesting to hear about what, um, that kind of political identity. Um, so I will just open up to um, to questions. Sorry, I was just scanning the comments. <laughs> um, so um, Helen has, um, and if anyone else wants to comment with questions, then that would be that would be great. Um, so Helen was asking about um, one of the topics that we were discussing earlier about that kind of uh, physical appearance and internal being, and she was asking what disabilities would be thought to have, you know, as having a uh, moral cause. Um. I, I, it's it's difficult to kind of to identify a particular kind of impairment, which is all, which is more often seen in moral terms than others. Um, but we do see, I mean, one example of of, of um, the sort of differentiation around um, uh, of, of attitudes towards disability based on morality, um, you can see in the industrial context is. Uh, in the rules of friendly societies, um, these are um, organisations which, which uh, spring up everywhere in industrial Britain. They are um, kind of the, the forerunners, I suppose, of modern health insurance. So workers pay in um, a, a certain amount every every, every week, and uh, that that prov hopefully provides them with some kind of um, support 
not uh, whether it's sick pay or medical care uh, when they fall ill. So. Um, the, the rules of these friendly societies, which are which are published, you can find them in um, in lots of record offices, um, often have um, exclusions. Like modern, you know, insurance policies have uh, are full of exclusions, preventing you know saying under circumstances where you can't actually claim any uh, support, and and they're very very clear about the moral causes of uh, of disability. So you know they have they they often have. Uh, rules which say, you know, if you're disabled by fighting or if you're disabled by drinking, then you shall have no support from the uh, friendly society. So, um, so, so yeah, it's it's so it's more about um, you know, weighing up the the causes of in, I mean, of an individual's impairment rather than the nature of that impairment itself. I think. So you bring up. Interesting point there. So, if you uh, if you became disabled through something like fighting or drinking, and your friendly society won't pay out to you, and you can no longer work, um, what were your options? You know, literally hope that your family supports you. You know, go into an institution of some sort or the workhouse. And was there anything else? Um. Well, those are the main options, I suppose. They, um, yeah. I mean, the family is really important. I mean, the, the family is actually the first port of call. So, you know, for, for anybody who is um, who needs care of, of any kind, then then there's an expectation, there's actually a legal obligation on families to support um, support their relatives. Um, so you actually uh, find, uh, I found a few cases of, um, of, of people who are, are prosecuted in this period for, for for, for sending their elderly parents to the workhouse because they don't yes. want to look after them at home. And um, yeah, I've, you know, so I've, I've found a few cases of that in, in when I've been looking at family history as well. It's, yeah, it's it's interesting. And I'm guessing when you say family as well, although perhaps not legally, I think I think maybe we might think of family as an immediate unit, but I think in the past perhaps that family was wider potentially as well, um, as in cousins and um a wider group but sorry i interrupted you <laughs> yeah i know it's uh you know so so, so the so that's really interesting and um so yeah i mean the, the poor relief is a you know it, it's um i suppose the, the fallback um you know which is you know after 1834 that's supposed to be um provided through the workhouse but it's very often not still so uh, the majority of disabled people get support outside of workhouses rather than inside them um, and then you know there's there's begging as well and and um you know so, so one of the most common ways in which disabled which we kind of find sort of disability written about in newspapers is uh, in the context of begging and people being arrested for vagrancy and um you know in the 19th century um after the 1824 uh, vagrancy acts um you know sort of uh, so, so uh, the act of of showing your deformities or, uh, or sores on the street could, could, could land you um, in trouble with um, with the police and so um, and so, so so you know that's a destitution you know, is, a, is a you know is a, is a reality of life for, 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 um, for you know some disabled people who don't have those other kinds of uh, support um, well, and then there's also kind of a case of a private charity of, of um, 
you know, not, not, not necessarily state supported, but, um, but just of appeals being um, made for, um, to, to, kind of, to kind of help individuals who, um, who, who are in, in trouble. So we're in, in coal mining, for example, if, uh, if someone was injured at work and not able to go back, uh, then sometimes their, their colleagues would, would have something called a gathering, which is a, um, a kind of you know, a whip round basically to, uh, to, 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 to to give them a bit of money to, to, to buy some tools or to um, buy some some, uh, some things they could sell. Um, and this is my, I promise this is my very last example from Merthyr Tidville tonight, but um, <laughs> the, um, there's a fantastic account of somebody, um, a, a, I think a commercial traveler, uh, describing arriving in Merthyr um, in the mid, mid Victorian period, and uh, almost as soon as he gets uh, gets off the coach, he is uh, asked to buy a lot by a raffle ticket to buy a wooden leg for a young man. So there's these kind of ingenious sort of examples of uh, of fundraising. Um, I, for, for, for I've seen examples of fundraising, um, similar sort of things in the newspapers as well, and it lists all the people that have donated as well, which is quite nice. Got this long list of who. <laughs> who actually put yeah. some money forward you know yeah uh, yeah yeah there's a historian called um um well um a, a fantastic historian who uh, sadly died a few years ago paul longmore who uh described that as con conspicuous contribution this sort of uh, you know sort of uh, um you know not just being charitable towards uh, disabled people but being seen to be charitable uh in, in that way yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, we've got another question pop up from um, Sarah who says, um, I think some of this we've answered slightly, but was disability viewed differently depending on your class or your gender? Yeah, definitely. Um, and this makes it, you know, that's, that's why, you know, I'm reluctant to, to talk about sort of general attitudes towards disability or general experiences of disability in the past, because so much depends on your social backgrounds, whether you're a man or a woman, and um, you know all these things are, you know, age and so forth. All these things have a have a bearing on on people's experiences. It makes it very difficult to generalise about disabled people being all being marginalised or all being institutionalised or anything like that, because uh, because in, in certain circumstances your social background could could shield you from from these kinds of. Um, uh, 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 situations i suppose so um so yeah i mean you know gen it could be very difficult you know if, if you um you know, if you're from a um a poor background um to, to um to, to make your way if you're disabled if you lack that family support if you're more reliant on the kinds of um institutional support that's that um just just talked about but there's also cases of um of um wealthy uh, just people disabled people being born to wealthy families are seen as shameful family secrets and so you know that they are sort of shut away by their families and um you know they're seen as embarrassing and uh, um and so um you know you could say actually that in working class communities um disability is much more expected and much more of a sort of fact of life and so um and so you know it's something that everyone could experience or you know probably would experience at some stage and so there might be a more open and accepting uh view of disability amongst the poor uh compared to 
um, the rich. Gender is a really interesting point as well in that um, disabled men are far more represented in our sources than disabled women. And that's, you know, partly because, you know, men are more, you know, uh, men are more visible in history than, 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 than women are. But it's, but I think there's, some, there's something going on with disability as well. That actually, um, you know, so when, so, so when that, that, that newspaper reporter went to Merthyr in 1850, you know, notice all these, these wooden legs, he's, he's noticing men with wooden legs because they, they would be more visible because of their clothing. And, um, you know, there's more pressure on women to conceal deformity. So, um, you know, factory um, reformers in the 1830s who are trying to get um, disabled people to come forward and tell their stories are saying that actually it's very hard. There are, there are lots of, uh, of young, young women with, um, with disabilities in, uh, in towns like Leeds and, uh, and Bradford, but they're, very, um, but they're very reluctant to come forward because that would mean exposing themselves as, as being uh, effective, if you like, and, uh, and that might ruin their marriage chances. So, um, so there's the, the pressures um, on women to, to conceal disability that, that men um, don't experience in the same way, I think, and that, and that has an impact on, 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 um, on how disability appears in our sources. I suppose if you're a woman as well and you're striving towards um, middle class, um, then, then you might not want it known that you were working as well potentially and that anything work related happened to you I guess, I guess there's like a whole a whole nother kind of stigma thrown in there as well and then and then add in eugenics <laughs> and you've kind of got mm. a whole boiling pot really um yeah. thank you David I found our talk really really interesting can you remind me of the um the title of your um your book and where people can um go and get it <laughs> Yeah, well, the, the book is called uh, Disability in the Industrial Revolution. It's written by me and uh, Daniel Blackie. And the great thing about this book um, is that it's available free. It's, uh, it's uh, open access because uh, it's based on research funded by the Wellcome Trust and they kindly paid for it to, to become uh, kind of free, freely available. So um, you can uh, access this through, um, through Manchester University Press, uh, they have a resource called um, Manchester Open Hive, which is uh, where you'll be able to download uh, the book. Um, uh, open, that's O-A-P-E-N, is a, is a website which also has open access books um, on it as well. And you can download a copy there. And if you go to, um, if you're on Twitter, if you go to uh, my page, uh, which is at Dr. David MT, uh, then I think then I've got a pinned a link there to the book so um you know i've done myself out of loads of sales here but i'd rather <laughs> people um people actually read the book and you know with academic books uh, price is often such a barrier i think to people accessing some really interesting work so um so no so 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 don't buy my book but but please you know download it from uh from, from the, the website <laughs> um i will the i will make a so um if you've enjoyed this interview, then there are lots of other twice removed um, interviews on my website, which is www.genealogystories.co.uk. And I will add a page um, about this interview. I tend to add some um, related resources to that page as well. So I'll make sure it's on there. Um, 
but yeah thank you david very much for your time i really enjoy chatting and I'd, I'd urge everyone to you know have a look for their disabled ancestors and even if you don't find a disabled ancestor in your tree or can't find evidence your ancestors would have met disabled people and worked with disabled people and had disabled friends so i think it's still a really important aspect of their lives even if they perhaps themselves you can't find that they were um had any disabilities themselves gosh i'm it's definitely nine o'clock because i clearly lost the plot on that last <laughs> sentence <laughs> thank you for bearing with me <laughs> but thank you very much david oh no thanks oh lose my mouse just as i go to hit the end broadcast this is the problem with having two screens right okay oh everyone's just quite a few thank you comments coming in which is i'll just share with you david because it's always nice to see after you've just been talking isn't it <laughs> Right. That's lovely. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for watching.